I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 50 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is one of the greatest drummers around, Steve Goulding. You may have heard him more than you realize. As a member of The Rumor, he backed Graham Parker on his impressive opening volley of albums from Howlin' Wind and Heat Treatment through the classic Squeezing Out Sparks. That last one gave the world local girls and passion is no ordinary word. also is the drummer on Nick Lowe's debut album, Jesus of Cool, otherwise known as Pure Pop For Now People. That's him on So It Goes, Heart of the City, and I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass. And when Elvis Costello hadn't yet assembled the attractions as his backing band, he enlisted Goulding and rumor bassist Andrew Bodnar to accompany him on a reggae-inflected track called Watching the Detectives. The result is one hell of a performance. Goulding also has played with Gang of Four and Poi Dog Pondering, among others, but his longest association has been with the Mekons. In fact, when we spoke, he had just returned to his Brooklyn home from Valencia, Spain, where the Mekons were recording tracks for their next album. When he first saw the Mekons back in the early 1980s, Goulding thought they were sloppy, over-lubricated, and told too many jokes. The joke-telling never ended, but the band's new lineup, which added Goulding and a few others, made the transformative 1985 album Fear and Whiskey with more excellent ones to follow. Despite the song's often dark subjects, the live shows were joyous celebrations in which much of the audience might wind up dancing on stage. Goulding has some thoughts on that whole audience on stage deal. Once again, Goulding found himself in a band on the rise, with AM signing the Mekons before the rousing, highly acclaimed rock and roll album. But as is often the case, the music was greater than the experience or sales figures, and AM didn't even want the next top notch album, The Curse of the Mekons. Goulding tells why he quit the band soon afterward, and why some years later he was eager to rejoin. By this time, he had moved to Chicago, as did fellow Mekons and former Carol pop guests John Langford and Sally Timms. Goulding was the original drummer in Langford's cowboy punk band, the Waco Brothers, and recorded and performed with another large, musically diverse collective, Poi Dog Pondery, playing on the albums Pomegranate and Natural Thing. In this conversation, Steve Goulding looks back at his epic career, from learning drums while growing up in South London to forming The Rumor and teaming up with Graham Parker. How did he get such a great feel for playing reggae and R&B on top of straight ahead rock? How were his experiences with the producers on those Graham Parker and The Rumor albums, including Nick Lowe, Mutt Lang, Jack Niche, and Jimmy Iovine? Iovine produced The Up Escalator, the last of those albums before The Rumor broke up, so that may give you a hint about that one. How did Goulding wind up getting a songwriting credit on Nick Lowe's I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass? And how did that album come together? How did the Watching the Detective session go? And what was Elvis Costello like back then? How did Goulding wind up playing with David Bowie exactly once in 1980? What was the contrast like when Goulding was touring with the Thompson Twins around the same time he began working with the Mekons? Goulding also describes the Mekons collective creative process and how once again, a theme is emerging on the new album. Please enjoy Steve Goulding on Carol Pop. Did you grow up in South London? Is that right? Yeah, I'm stressing. 
what was your discovery of the drums and uh you know how did you how did you get into it and what did you want to like what did you like playing along with at the time um it was because you know i I tried playing piano and that was too complicated i tried playing guitar and the strings hurt my fingers and so i you know i wanted to do something i think you know i was interested in music um and drums was easiest and i just started out and then i started listening to drummers keith moon was the first you know drummer that i'd listened to because it was like you know he was the person that was doing most you know it was the first drummer that i'd heard that treated the drums as like sort of a frontline instrument kind of thing as opposed to just like keeping the beat in the background um right and then and I, I graduated I, to sort of ginger baker and and you know people like that and 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 uh you know, uh, Jim Gordon and Bernard Purdy, and, you know, you gradually get deeper into it. But Keith Moon was the first, you know, especially for, like, you know, songs like Happy Jack, you know, when he's, like, playing timbales and stuff, you know, that's, that stuff like that. It was, you know, it's, like, really easy to copy and fun. When, when I talked to John Langford for this, he was also talking about just what a great reggae drummer you are. And I'm wondering mm. if that was something you picked up on early or if that sort of was sort of later as, you know, more, I don't know, kind of rock bands were sort of discovering reggae. And yeah, stuff. no, it was, it was always around, but I didn't really play with people that could play reggae until the first proper band that me and Andrew Bodner and everybody in that band was kind of listening to reggae. So we, we did a couple of, you know, like Whalers songs because they were just coming out around that time, about 72, 73. Yeah. And because, you know, you could buy reggae records in the shops in Clapham and Brixton. So I just picked stuff up and then practice along to it. And I just got more and more into it. And I always really liked it. I loved Scar and, and, and uh, you know, Blue Beat and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't really until, I don't know, 75, 76, when I, I got like, you know, more deeper into it, you know, uh, that I, I would start trying to copy reggae drummers like, like, uh, you know, Carlton Barrett and stuff. Did you obsessively sort of play and practice? I mean, I always, you've always been to me. Excessively. Very... <laughs> According to my labors. Yeah, definitely excessively. Yes. There you go. You're sort of a very precise drummer and everything kind of locks in around you. And I, and there was at least one Mekon show I'd seen at Lounge Jacks years ago where they kind of had a couple different drum, like you sort of sat in for a bit and they had another drummer and, and it's no knock on the other drummer, but when you sat in, everything sort of changed and everything kind of held together. And I'm wondering if that's something that, you know, from you playing at an early age, you just sort of became that kind of pre- it's precision because you got to be a good timekeeper, but it's also the feel of it. And just, you know, it's music and you have to lock everyone in and be in a groove. And I'm wondering sort of how that came to you or if you have any idea. I no, not really. I mean, it's just sort of how I play. I mean, it's, you know, I don't really know how to play any different from that. And I mean, I like drummers that don't play like that, you know, I, but I can't do that myself. You know, I used to really love the, the guy in uh, NRBQ, the drum, their drummer who died. And I loved the way that he, he played and it was like he was sort of flailing away, but it was just like really, really had a great groove and, and, and uh, you know, that was, that was fantastic, but I couldn't, I couldn't play like that particularly. No, I mean, I, I think the drummers that I listened to, you know, some, you know, people like Al Jackson or, 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 or right. um, you know, people like that were quite precise and, and, you know, or, you know, it's like Dunbar or, or Carlton Barrett, you know, that that's very crisp and, you know, you, every, they, they make everything count. So that's kind of how, what I picked up on, I guess. So, 
Yeah, Al, Al Jackson's a great uh, example because he's someone who he never seems to be doing that much that's fancy, but there's something that just makes you go deep into the groove in the pocket with what, whatever mm-hmm. he's doing is just like working on some other level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in high school, you were friends with Andrew Bodnar, who uh, is bassist, and he and the two of you were that were rhythm section together for years in multiple bands, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we started out, uh, we were at different schools, and somebody at his school spotted me. I was playing a pantomime, <laughs> playing drums in a church pantomime, and they needed a drummer. And so they asked me to play drums for them. And that was the first band that I was in. And we would sort of get together and practice. And at, um, Andrew's dad was an upholsterer. And we would go to his workshop and set up on the weekends because it was like a big open space and practice. And it just kind of started from there. And then people kind of went away and me and Andrew both wanted to continue playing music. And so we would, uh, we put ads in the Melody Maker, which was the big, you know, uh, music paper at the time. So you looked at, at the classified ads at the back of the Melody Maker for, for you know, for work, for, for different bands and stuff. Advertised ourselves as a rhythm section and found this other guy and formed a, a band with him. And it was much more, not professional, but it was much more serious. Um, and that was when I started to get in touch. You know, we started to get in touch with people who we later realized knew other people that knew, you know, like, and, and that was when Graham Parker was part of that whole scene as well. So it was just a very gradual kind of thing, uh, a process of like people joining and people leaving and, and stuff. Um, right. And you had, you had the rumor as a band before you guys hooked up with Graham Parker, right? Yeah. I mean, me and Andrew met Dave Robinson um, and, we were doing sessions, like demo sessions up at the Hope and Anchor, which is a pub in North London that uh, Dave had built a studio on the top floor or the upper floor. And um, that was a great learning experience. You know, you, you could instantly sort of see what worked and what didn't or hear what worked and what didn't, you know, when you were playing with these people. Um, and... Um, that was around the same time that, that Duck Stillux and uh, Brinsley Schwartz were breaking up and the whole pub rock thing was kind of coming to a close. And Dave, being Dave, wanted to sort of get something else going. He's always you know, on the lookout for the next big thing. And so he put us together with uh, Brinsley and, and Bob and Martin. And we started rehearsing at another pub uh, in South London, the Newlands Tavern. Um, and got us set together and started doing a few gigs um, as ourselves, as the rumour. Right. Um, mostly like old Brinsley Schwartz covers or, or old R&B covers and stuff. Um, and then Graham came along and this is around the same time that Elvis was, you know, people going up to the, to Dave's studio and recording demos and stuff. And, um, Elvis was up there as well. And Graham came along and, you know, we started doing some songs with him. So we would do a half a set and then Graham would come along for like three at three songs. Everybody in the in the place would go to the bar or go to the toilet or something because nobody. <laughs> and then we'd come back on and, and do the rest of our set. And gradually, you know, we started doing more songs with Graham, and he gradually took over. So yeah, that's how that developed. Now, did he take over because he had the songs, and you guys were like, "Oh, we want to play these songs," or how did that happen? He took over because he was, uh, you know, he was had a great voice, and he was learning how to be a really good frontman. And he, yeah, he did have original songs as well. I think Dave saw the possibilities that, that he could, um, you know, try and get a, a record deal with him or we would be the backing band. I think it was all a bit, you know, uh, nebulous at that point. 
Um, you know, you never know how these things are going to work out. And um, it just turned out that Graham was really lucky and, and got a record deal pretty much straight away uh, on the strength of one song. And um, we were there to back him up. You know, Did you guys see it as sort of like a, the band sort of situation where you guys were a, a band and you would do your own things, but then you'd also yeah, do your I guess, albums kind of with like him? That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of how we saw it. It's, I don't think it's how the rest of the world saw it, but <laughs> we uh, that's how we like to think of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, after the first album uh, and then we did a little tour of America in the station wagon for two weeks. Um, and then we went for the second tour, which was actually much, you know, it was like obviously something was happening the second time. Um and then it gradually got bigger and bigger. So, And he had a definite sort of, you know, R&B kind of basis to that stuff. And you had horn sections and, you know, how like long was that first album? Yeah. Did you, did you enjoy playing like that? Like, was that sort of the sort of, the sort of stuff you'd been playing anyway? I mean, that's kind of what grew out of pub rock in a way. We were right at the, me and Andrew right at the sort of tail end of, of pub rock. We did play in pubs, but we weren't really, you know, in the heyday of pub rock. It was like right at the end of it. But yeah, I mean, that's the sort of stuff I was listening to. I mean, I was listening to, you know, soul and R&B and, and, and reggae. So, I mean, I think we were basically all on the same wavelength. You know, Graham was definitely into that sort of stuff, you know, Motown and Stax and all of that. Um, so it was pretty much like an ideal combination. Do you remember sort of the first songs he brought in that you got very excited about? Like you thought, oh, this is a really great song. No. <laughs> um he had a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, he had stuff that we did that never made it. Yeah, I mean, it was basically all the stuff on the first album, plus more more stuff that never really, you know, we never really did anything with. No, I mean, I, I you know, I, I've never really listened to lyrics. I listened to sort of beats and, you know, how am I going to play this one? Or, you know, what? how can we make this different? How can we make this more interesting? I don't really... You know, I mean, I, I listen to lyrics about like six months or a year down the road, and it's like, oh, that's what that right. song's like, Oh, okay. So I didn't really take it. I didn't really go from the point of view of, oh, this is a great song. Well, you know, like I wouldn't. You know, I would say something like, this is a great tune, or since that's something that's sticking with me in my head, kind of thing. But you know, I, the songs, I, 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 I don't know. What was what was Graham Parker like in the studio? Was he? sort of dictating what he thought the, the arrangements of the song should be, or did the rumor pretty much kind of come up with a backing? Like he'd come up with a song and then you guys would set it. He got more confident the more that we did, you know, the more we recorded, you know, and I think by the time of, um, I guess like not so much stick to me, but like, you know, after, you know, uh, when we were doing squeezing out sparks, he, he sort of knew exactly what he wanted. Um, but for the first album, I remember that it was pretty much like we would start, you know, we were, I mean, he gave us pretty much a lot of, you know, a lot of leeway to you know, interpret stuff uh, as, as we thought. And I mean, I think we were that much on the same wavelength that if we come up with something that was way too much left field, then he, we would, nobody would have liked it. So, you know, I think we had a problem with Howling Wind the, with, the, with the song because it's like, you know, it didn't really want it to be a reggae song, but we didn't want it to be like rock. So, you know, you sort of end up with this kind of weird hybrid kind of thing. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you, it's just a process of working stuff out. Really. You know, it's much, it was much more democratic, I think, in the beginning. Um, and in the end, it was much more like 
you know, this is how this is how I want it to be. So, how much of an impact, by the way, did the producers have on those records? I mean, Nick Lowe did the first one and and Stick to Me, um, and uh, but you had what Jack Nishi did, Squeezing Out Sparks, and then yeah. Jim Iving coming in on Up Escalator, which was probably more produced. But did the producers have much of an impact on those records overall, or more so as it well, went along? I mean, everybody has the different styles, like Nick would, you know, be Nick and just go and go, you know, just bang it down. Let's, let's you know, I think you can, you know, that's perfect. Let's do it again. That, that kind of thing. Um, he didn't really arrange stuff so much. Um, he was much more down to, you know, is it, does this feel good? Is this exciting? Is this, you know, is it going to work kind of thing? And then when we had Mutt Lang, Mutt Langer for, for um, right. heat treatment, that was more like going to boot camp. I mean, that would be like, you know, he had a very strict idea of what he wanted the songs to sound like kind of thing. Um, he had this horrible habit of you'd be doing a take and if somebody had fucked something up, he would flip on the studio intercom where the, the, the you know, the music was coming through the speakers. Um, and it's a little bit out there, boys. You know, and you would get this kind of white noise coming through your headphones. So like that. <laughs> So you were playing like most of those tracks, you know, I'm, I'm sort of playing like, oh, I think I got away with that one. It's like, oh, dear. You know, it was like, <laughs> oh, bullshit, really. um, it was horrible. So that was kind of an odd experience. Is that um, why you guys went back to Nick Lowe after that? I think that was just because uh, Nick was around, you know, uh, probably it was probably something to do with that. I mean, he, he was, you know, it was always, he was always someone I really enjoyed working with anyway, you know, and I think, Everybody knew each other, so that was good. But I think when Jack Nietzsche came along for uh, squeezing out sparks, that was great for us because we'd, you know, we'd had like a few years of like, oh, the rumor, that's so great. You know, there's this great musicianship, blah, 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 blah. And, like, and we were like, oh, yeah, pretty hot shit. You know, it was great. And he was like, you guys are really playing way too much and it's like what are you what are you listening to it's like you can't hear the song and you know it's like a big sort of slap around the face you know it's a pail of cold water and, and, and he was very upset he was very pissed off the first three days when when uh, we were working with him he was just like you'd come in and you know you'd do run a song down you'd do a take and he'd come in and and, and he'd be like on the studio desk with his head between his hands, kind of like that, going, how was that, Jack? And, he'd be like, nah. and I think Graham had a word with him, some, something to the tune of, we're paying you quite a lot of money. Can you please <laughs> provide some input? So after about the third day, he was like, okay. And he sent out for like some drugs and some beer and stuff. And then he said, okay, you, you guys need to listen to each other. You need any tell He would tell us about like, these old blues guys recorded, how Howling Wolf recorded, how Otis Spahn recorded, how the Rolling Stones recorded, because he was there. And he'd tell us all he snow about being there with Elvis, Elvis Presley. Um, and he provided this atmosphere of, 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 you know, depth of knowledge, plus a bit of discipline of like, okay, you need to be playing much more simply. You need, you need to listen to stuff you know um so that was really good that was a great experience working with them really good squeezing out sparks is a more stripped down kind of straight ahead rock record was it was it that when you went into the studio or did you originally think oh yeah we'll, we'll add the horns later and and he was like no no horns we're we're not doing that yeah this time. yeah yeah 
pretty much, yeah. Um, you know, like, like I said, we came in with probably all these like highfalutin ideas about, oh, yes, we can do this. It's one of this fantastic flourish that I've been practicing for the last, you know, six weeks. <laughs> and that all went out the window. And it was like, okay, we're going to play the song, boom, 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 like that, you know, um, which worked great. Did it feel like, because that album came to be seen as sort of the big breakthrough record for Grant Parker and the Rumor, certainly in terms of critical acclaim and I think popularity and radio play and that sort of thing. Mm. Did, did, it, did it feel like that by the time you were done with it or? No, I mean, it just felt like we need to get this, get this done. I mean, you don't really think about it in those terms. It's just like, let's finish this thing and, you know, let's figure out what to play on this song. And then, you know, you work, and that's, that's, that's all other people. Everything that you do is, is like, well, what's the best thing for this song, really? And, you know, yeah, we, don't, we didn't really think of it, oh, this is our masterpiece, this is, you know, anything like that, no. Well, once it was out, would you be going, hey, Local Girls is getting played on these stations or something like that, or were you just sort of detached from that? I mean, we, we were basically touring so much that it didn't really, you know, you were just playing to... You know, you noticed it in the size of the audience, I think, you know, and the enthusiasm of the audience didn't really notice it so much with you know, radio play or album sales or anything like that. You know. was, that a, was that a good period for you? It was great. Yeah, it was fun. You know, it's like touring around in a bus and, you know, you're, you're, you're touring America and, and, you know, touring Australia and Japan and, and all of those places. And, and uh, it's like, wow, this is great, you know. Yeah, I mean, I was, how old was I? I was like 24, 25. And, um, yeah, it was fun. And then there was, the up escalator was after that. And then that was the last one you guys were on, right? Yeah. And I think I mean, Bob was wasn't on like that the, one. No, no. Well, um, that was pretty much like the last, that was the the, the opposite of, of uh, squeezing out sparks. That was not a great experience. Um, I did not like Jimmy Iovine. Um, I don't think, any of us did particularly. And um, the sound of it was plodding. And I don't know. It, uh, I think everybody at that point was really exhausted. Everybody was you know, taking drugs. And, and, you know, it was just um, every people were kind of alienated from each other. So that was, yeah, that was not, not a great experience. You know, I mean, it, for me, it was like personally, it like took whole day to get a snare drum sound. I mean, that was, you know, ridiculous. So, you know, you were spending more on, on you know, uh, studio fees to, you know, getting a snare drum sound that we were making for the whole album. You know, it was just, it was, you know, insane. So. Yeah. yeah. Jimmy Ivan became like that sort of go-to guy for that early eighties sound that was very big and slick and not like what I like listening to. It's, it's, it's almost like you become sort of a, victim of your own success because because i mean i don't know if this is how it worked but i'm thinking imagine the label like okay you guys are like you're moving up now we got to give you jimmy Iving, and he's gonna yeah, give you that guess, sound. Yeah. yeah i mean i wasn't privy to you know what why we got jimmy Iving as a, as a producer but um it, i don't think his sound was particularly suitable for for graham you know i mean graham did but you know that was that was him so and then we we sort of split up. I mean, I think he wanted to he wanted to be more successful. And I think maybe I mean it's probably wrong, but I got the impression in the back of his mind he wanted to be a bit more like sort of Rod Stewart, that that kind of thing, where you know you start out with 
you know, you get this grassroots support and everything is like great with the faces and everything and everything's fantastic. But then you want a bit more. So you go more middle of the road and you have to get this new audience and you start doing like, you know, tonight's the night and whatever <laughs> doing. You, yeah, know. you think I'm sexy. Yeah, exactly. But I think Graham couldn't go that far. So he, he only went a little bit towards that, but he couldn't, he didn't have it, <laughs> you know, he wasn't he wasn't that shameless unfortunately <laughs> so uh, yeah I mean that's my theory anyway they stare at billboards as if for guidance there's something wrong here I can't put my finger on same thing same way everyday stupid passion oh yeah well then in the meantime you and Andrew had been on in 1978 on uh, Nick Lowe's uh, album Jesus of Cool, known in the U.S. as Pure Pop for Now People. Was that? Did he just pull you guys in because he'd worked with you and he was getting, you know, he had these songs after Brinsley? Well, it was actually before it. that. Um, we started working with him before that. That was about 76. Um, I mean, I was on the first record I was ever on was, was um, his uh, uh, Bay City Rollers, We Love You, which was like <laughs> 75, 76. Um, I think you know, he, he, him and Jay could come to one of our gigs and, and, you know, um, liked me and Andrew. And then I think when we started with, with, uh, the rumor, we were around and I think Nick wanted sort of a different sound. And, 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 uh, so, yeah, we, those, those first sessions, like, so it goes and heart of the city were, you know, put to us as like, Oh, these are just demos, you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, you know, we'll see how it works out kind of thing. And then the next thing you know, it's like actually out on your local jukebox. And it's like, oh, when we did, um, I love the sound of Breaking Glass. That was Andrew as well on, on that, so me and Andrew and Nick. Um, and there was other and, things like, you know, that Nick produced like Reckless Eric, like Whole Wide World and stuff that, that, that I was on as well. So and I we love did. the sound of Breaking Glass. You and Andrew are get co-writing credits on that. So how was yeah. that song written? Um, well, he had the basic idea and, and it was, um, I came up with this, you know, he wanted me to do a drum fill and I was like, well, that's a bit corny. Why don't you get Andrew to do this kind of boop, 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 <laughs> something up kind of thing. So we did that. And I think it was just generally, he's quite generous. And I think that we, we'd been playing on a bunch of his stuff and not making much money. So he just kind of put us on that, you know, to, as a co-writing thing. Um, cause we'd had a hand in not much of a hand, but like a bit of a hand in sort of co-writing stuff, not co-writing, but like coming up with little ideas and, and playing and stuff. So I think it was a, his generosity rather than our contribution. <laughs> Although that, that do, 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 do is a pretty key part of that song. So yeah, no, it's just an idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, one has these ideas. Yeah. Was that album re recorded kind of piecemeal like that? Or was there a sense where like, all right, now these are the Jesus of cool sessions and we're going to finish this. No, off. I mean, there's much more piecemeal. I mean, he would get like the, the blockheads in to do um, some stuff or you'd get like Terry Williams in or, or, or um, Pete Thomas in to play on different, different tracks, you know? Um, so it was, I think it was more like a whole bunch of stuff that was kind of cobbled together. I mean, I think he probably, came up with the idea of an album later on. He probably had all these tracks and I, I'm not quite sure, but uh, um, I think him and Jake definitely had a thing of, you know, the, the, the intention of, of him being a solo artist from quite early on. Right. And that the roller show, uh, what, what part of that Bay City Rollers tribute ended up on the American version of it too. So that was like one of the first things recorded, it sounds like. 
That's the first thing I did, and it was just me. I mean, he. <laughs> I think they, they made it so that they, he wanted to get out of his record contract. So they wanted to make it as crappy as possible. So they basically <laughs> just had me set up playing drums by myself. It wasn't even Nick playing guitar. And so he was like, come on, do it, do it. You know, just do a bass city roll as drum beats. So I go boom, 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 boom. And then he would sort of signal me to do a fill and I'd do a fill <laughs> and then go back to that beat and then signal me to do another fill. I mean, I didn't even know there wasn't even a song there at that, at that point. So um, it's it's a pretty weird drum track. It kind of speeds up and slows down. It's horrible. <laughs> he was just he was just in town with uh, he was opening for Elvis uh, and at Canal Shores in Evanston, and but he played at the Old Town School of Folk Music the night before with Los Los Straight Jackets both nights. They, he did a bunch of so uh, songs with Los Straight Jackets, and they did a little set, and then they played Roller Show as he came back out, and I'm like, oh, it's Roller Show. So little did you know you know what 40 44 years later 45 years later he'd still be playing that song <laughs> now who brought you in to do um you and andrew again on watching the detectives because that's a nick's producing that how did you end up on that session me and andrew were um auditioning the attractions we, we you know elvis needed a backing band and he didn't have anybody i think they had they had Pete in mind as a drummer because Jake knew Pete from managing Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. But Pete was in California playing with, can't remember his name, solo singer, songwriter. Anyway, so, but they needed a bass player and a keyboard player. So we were called into audition. And I mean, it was kind of a job because this was like 1976 and everybody was still a hippie. So you had, you know, the bass player would be like, Chris Squire going <laughs> all over the place. And, you know, you'd be like, well, okay, thank you very much. The keyboard player would be, you know, Rick Wakeman or, you know, that. So it's like obviously not what we wanted. Um, so it was it was a trial, you know. Um, and eventually Bruce Bruce turned up and he had a good pedigree with Sullivan Brothers and Quiver and, and he, he could play, you know, reggae and stuff because that was one of the songs that we used to, you know, weed out, sort the wheat from the chaff kind of thing. And then Steve Naive turned up with, he had like already drunk half a bottle of whiskey and he was like out of his mind. Jake was like, yes, he's hired. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Watching the Detectives was one of the songs that we used to audition people. And that was how we, we went into the studio with Elvis because, you know, that was, we were around and he hadn't had, didn't have a, uh, a backing group yet. So, so wait. So you were helping him audition attractions. You weren't trying to be in the attractions, or no, no. We were in a band. We were with Graham. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. So, so it wasn't. So it wasn't like you were just. So you were just. You just were helping out. Because I was going to say, if 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 your audition was watching the detectives, I'd be like, well, of course you're hired because that's like a fantastic, timeless track, um, and yeah, it's, and it's you and Andrew playing with Elvis, and then Steve Naive came in later and over, yeah. overdubbed yeah. that keyboard part on it. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of that song when you uh, when he brought it out? I mean, that's one where again it's taking advantage of your reggae chops. You know, I, I've been playing that beat because I'd learned that beat from the Heptones. It was an album I played along with it at home in my bedroom. <laughs> there was this album called Night Food, which was them updating uh, a few older of their older songs, playing with the Whalers. Um, and there was this one song uh, called Country Boy that had that. Uh, really tricky uh, hi hat beat that I was was like wow what is that you know I was desperately trying to learn that and so I was working that out at that at that point uh, and playing and I 
I, I just had this idea that I wanted the beginning of that song to sound a bit like Ringo playing reggae. You know? <laughs> so it ended up like somebody said, this is like drums falling down the stairs or something like that. You know, um, she does kind of sound like that. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how that ended up like that. What was Elvis like to work with in the studio? Um, all right. I mean, I, I, I can't honestly remember. I mean, it's really a long time ago and it was just like that once. I mean, we knew him from before. You know, um, I think he was in this band Flip City and, you know, he was at gigs and stuff and you know, had chats with him and everything. Um, I don't think he was the sort of star person that he is now. I mean, it's just like a normal. Right. Work, really. Yeah. And you guys just did the one song with him. There weren't like other ones you did that just kind of got put on the show. There was another one called No Action that we did, but um, I think that got white um and I'd, i've heard it and it's like recorded in the same way as watching the detectives is and it's not very suitable because I'm, I'm playing much busier and it just sounds like insane drums all over the place it just sounds horrible yeah there was only one one other song i think huh. that we did so, so they re so they remade that for this year's model because it's the first well, yeah time i mean he had, he had like loads and loads of songs for the first time i encountered elvis i was up at the hope and anchor I was up to up there to see Dave and I walked up and he was down in the pit, like recording. And, and Dave was like, he's been there all day. He's recorded like 40 songs. You know, it's like, wow. Um, <laughs> so he's, he just had songs out the wazoo. So yeah, he had, there was no shortage of songs. He just, you know, there were just loads and loads of them. Yeah. Right. He was very prolific. Probably still is. Seems like it. He he's, he he was uh, still playing lots of new ones when he just played here. Yeah. Um. So you played with Garland Jeffries also. You and Andrew mm -hmm. were on that record as well mm -hmm. with a lot of the Springsteen people. It looked like the E Street Band. Kind uh, yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh, right there. And and uh, Danny Danny Federici was in it. G Smith did that, and that's how I got to play with David Bowie with G Smith. So that was that was at home weird one one thing following another kind of kind of thing that's very you know odd how much did you do with david bowie i just did the johnny carson show with him um we did ashes to ashes and life on mars uh with him um because we were record we we're rehearsing with garland we'd been rehearsing a week um in new york and and she came up at the end of it and said hey um I'm going to be playing with David Bowie this week. And do you want to play? He needs a drummer. Do you want to play drums? So I was like, sure. <laughs> of course, because this thing happens, this sort of stuff happens to me all the time. Yes, why not? Um, so we did that. So we rehearsed with Bowie at RCA Studios in, in Midtown. And we did Ashes to Ashes and Life on Mars. And we flew to LA and did the shows and stayed a, a night and then came back again. It was great. Very head spinning. Did you have much interaction with Bowie on that? Like, was he sort of giving a lot yeah. of instruction or did he? Yeah, no, he's, he was great. He was just like very, very chatty uh, in rehearsal. Um, really funny. Did really good impressions of people and very informative as well. You know, we were asking, asking about, you know, all the questions start coming out after a while. You, you start, you know, you start not being nervous around him. It's like, so... In in, in um, golden years, yeah, it's like. So, what are you singing in golden years? It's come rubber the baby like that. And it's like, <laughs> like, what is that? And he's like, well, I, I I sang this and I sang the other thing on top of it, so you couldn't understand what I was saying. It's like, oh, all right. And then he's talking about recording Fame with 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 John Lennon. John Lennon came up with Fame, the the fame, that that kind of thing, right? And, 
um, yeah, it, it was, uh, you know. yeah, people don't realize that that's John Lennon going, yeah, it's just, you know, so he was like super chatty and super friendly and said, you know, can you do this on the drums? I was like, yeah, okay. Made some suggestions and, and then, which I followed and that was that. Yeah. It was great. And then you were in, you were in Gang of Four briefly as well. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. and then the Mekons and, I'm, and, and the Mekons and the Gang of Four were always kind of pals. So I'm wondering if that was sort of all connected or the reason I was in the Gang of Four was because I did a world tour with Lena Lovitch and the tour manager. And that was this guy, Jim Chapman, who was a friend of mine. And he was also Gang of Four's one of his, their road crew. And he told me that Hugo was leaving and they were auditioning um, drummers. And so when I came back from Lena Lovitch, I auditioned for Gang of Four. And just hit it off with them, you know, with um, Andy and, and John, and it, it was great, you know. And I wasn't aware of their history or Mekons or anything at that point, you know. Just we were just in different circles, but we had the same sort of basic outlook and sense of humor, and it was just that was really fun. It was just a really fun band to be with. It was great, and I'm sorry it didn't last. Yeah, they, you, you guys long. did like one album together, right? I didn't do any, rec- I didn't, I only did, uh, I think they recorded a live album. I didn't record anything with them. Oh, right, right. That. Yeah. Cause they had that album where they didn't have a, right. Cause they only had four. They had hard, which was a shitty album. And that they were doing songs from that. Um, some songs from that on, on tour, but it was kind of like the sort of the arse end of, of their, of their little career, of that part of their career. But yeah, then after that, that was, you know, Jim, my friend Jim also suggested that I start playing with the Mekons, which I was like, there's no way I want to play with this. They're terrible. I went along and saw them <laughs> at um, this place, this pub in Hackney, and they were, they were just drunk and they were just like making these stupid jokes. And it's like, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> I, I want to play with them. They um, don't make stupid and- jokes anymore, though. <laughs> you know they're stupid and they're just not 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 funny anymore <laughs> no it was uh then i also knew lou i'd met lou um and it was kind of like well if if you do it i'll do it kind of thing uh, with lou um so we did and then Susie joined at the same time and actually started sounding quite good that was fear of fear and whiskey was the first thing you were on right yeah half of fear and whiskey yeah because the other half was like drum machine stuff what did you think of the songs at the time and, and kind of what was the process of them creating them back then? They were really weird. I mean, the songs are very weird. And at the same time, I, I sort of I started playing with the Thompson Twins. So we did Fear and Whiskey, and then I went on tour with the Thompson Twins, did this world tour with them. Wow. So it was kind of this weird, you know, I don't know. I mean, the Mekons are at one end of the spectrum and the Thompson twins are at the other end of the spectrum. So I was like doing these, this kind of very weird adjustment between, between the two of them, you know, and neither of them understood each. I mean, I think I had sort of Mekons tapes on the Thompson twins tour and Alana's like, what is this? This is just just like, (laughs) um, um, but, uh, yeah, uh, that was very odd. It was an odd time. Did you have any, I mean, if someone said to you, you know, the Mekons are a band that you're going to be playing with, you know, 35 years later and, or, you know, f- you know, more than almost 40 years later and, and do all this stuff, would you have been like, you're crazy. This is just like this little side weird project. I don't know. I mean, not really. I mean, I, I think the more that I started, you know, the more that I did it and the way that the songs were written, 
because I thought the songs were great. I mean, actually, I, I, you know, because they were just like these quotes from authors that I'd read, like Raymond Chandler stuff and, and like, I mean, like political, but not like sort of boringly political, not like sort of, you know, Billy Bragg or anything like that. Sorry. Excuse me, excuse me. But uh, they were just really interesting songs and, and, and they were very much open to any interpretation. You could play whatever you wanted, you know. Um, so I, I really like that aspect of it. It was that freedom to, to avoid the, and then the Thompson Twins was the opposite. That was like very regimented. We were playing to tapes back then. Um, so you had to play exactly the same every night, which was good. I mean, that was good discipline as well. So, Did you record yeah, them as well or just tour with the Thompson Twins? Just touring. Yeah. With the Thompson Twins. But yeah, I mean, I think the question being if, you know, did I see myself with them in 40 years time? I didn't really, you know, I'm, I didn't really think that far ahead for anything, but I, I didn't, you know, I thought, you know, this, I didn't think it would be successful. I mean, but I thought, you know, this is kind of fun to do. So, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't beyond the bounds of possibility that I would have been doing it or doing anything in 40 years, I guess. So it just turned out that way. Because with Grand Park and the rumor, you, you kind of climbed the ladder with them where they, you know, they kind of were ascending up to, you know, becoming more popular. And then you basically were doing the same thing with the Mekons, which is a very different sort of band, but uh, you know, they were you know, putting out fear and whiskey and edge of the world, which people here were buying on import. And then, you know, you had, uh, was it Twin Tone was putting out uh, mm. Honky Tonkin and So Good It Hurts, and then you, know, you had the big A and M rock and roll record. <laughs> so you kind of went th- like you were sort of the seasoned veteran at this point. You're like, well, I've seen this movie before. I've in done this before, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, with with um, the Mekons, there was a lot more sleeping on people's floors, I think, than, than with Graham Parker and the Rumor. So um, that was back to much more back to basics that I'd never really experienced before. You know, it was like, but yeah, it, there was an element of that. I mean, we, we got that really great review at art forum from real markets that was like that interested people in America in us. And that's kind of, that was the, you know, little crack in the door that, you know, we, we came over to America on, on the strength of that. Basically it was just, you know, being in the right place at the right time, I guess, yeah, maybe, I don't know. It's been, you know, it's, it was, you know, a slog, you know, but um, I think because we get along quite well personally, that's you know what uh, holds us all together. You know, helps you bear all those little setbacks that we have. Artistically, was this stretching you in ways that you hadn't been stretched before, being in the Mekons? I mean, I, I, I know it's stretching, but it's just, it just gives you a bit more freedom. To, I mean, there's much more freedom to interpret what whatever you know. Nobody come, like I said, nobody comes in with this idea i want it to be like this or i want this to go like this you know this is the only way that it can be because this is the way i've written the song i mean that doesn't really happen there's a lot more freedom to interpret um what people do so yeah it's it's good it doesn't really stretch me in 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 a way that if i was in like a jazz fusion band that would stretch me I mean, maybe that's not really the way I want to be stretched in the first place. Yeah, I was going to say, do you want to be in a JS fusion band? <laughs> yeah, <not really. laughs> you, could, you could join. Yes, you know they're they're always in you know search of the next. They always need new drummers. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember seeing you guys at Metro when Rock and Roll came out, and it was one of the, like the happiest concerts I've ever seen. And there were a bunch of them, you know, with that when that was coming out, then the Curse, uh, where it just like everyone would end up on stage at the end, and it was just like the most joyful. 
concerts mm-hmm. like I had experienced. And I'd, I'm wondering if it felt that way for you behind the skins. Mm, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I prefer it when the audience stays, stays in the audience. <laughs> um, I stayed in the audience. Good. That's where you belong. Um, no, yeah, I, yeah. It's it's always fun. I mean, there's there's been you know we do shows where it's mostly talking, and you know it's quite, quite honestly. Although we don't really do that so much anymore, but people get pissed off when we don't do jokes, and you know if we just. I think the last time we played in Chicago, we I did we did a gig at the Hideout. And this guy came up to me afterwards and, and he was saying, you know, that, one, that wasn't that good. You know, and I was like, what do you mean? It's like really good. It's like, so we didn't do, you, you were playing all the time. It's like, yeah. <laughs> we didn't do all the jokes. It's like, <laughs> we don't do the jokes all the time. You know, it's like, we're not a fucking comedy band, you know. But I think maybe that's what people think we are. So it's, it's odd. When you're in Europe, you don't do comedy all the time because nobody can understand what you're what you're saying so you play so we're a we are a band it's, it's a bit odd well the, the great thing about the mecons is that they're there there's a wide range of mecons concert experiences and some of them mm-hmm. are very loose and some mm-hmm. of them are less loose and sometimes if there are two in a night the second one is very different from the first one and uh, i remember seeing alcohol you guys at, been consumed. <laughs> right. yes exactly i think there was one where you i think it was maybe the naked were you, you guys were at Old Town School and everyone's just sort of sitting on chairs. Oh, I God. There's, no. there's yeah, a lot no, of talking in that one. <laughs> no, it's the most embarrassing. Yeah. And we did one, one set and then the next set we were like, oh, let's do all these other songs that we never really do. And it's like, okay. Nobody knew them. So <laughs> at some point, somebody, somebody from the audience said, why don't you play something you know? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> It seems like when I've seen you at in recent years at the Hideout or at the um, Square Roots Festival, I mean, and you've you've had Dave Trumpfield come in playing bass. Now it's he seems to totally lock in with you guys. Mm-hmm. And 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 sometimes when the when the storytelling is going a little bit long, I'll see you on the kit, and you're just like, and you'll just like start the next song, like okay. And I get the feeling that you're kind of the disciplinarian in the band. Is that true? <laughs> Not really. No. No. I just you're like okay, work. let's yeah. get this one going now. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you want to. I just no, I'm not the disciplinarian of that. No, um, I don't think the band would survive with a disciplinarian in it. No, but um, good humored disciplinarian. Yeah, yeah. No, I just want to get. You know, it gets a bit boring after a while. You know, if, if you can tell when if it's if the joke is is going okay, then you know, I'll keep it. Keep, you know, let it run. But if it's like okay, this is getting a bit much. It's like let's let's cut it off. You know. Not a And you lived in Chicago for a while, which I appreciated because I'm like, oh my God, Steve Goulding in Chicago. It was very cool because I was a big Mekons fan when I was like not living here, uh, even though I was from here originally. And then I moved here and then the Mekons started moving here. And I think it was you and then John and then Sally. You were here for a bit and you, you recorded with them and then you were in Poor Dog Pondering for a while too. But like, what was your, what brought you to Chicago and what was that experience? Got married and moved to Chicago in like 1989, 1990, um, and then divorced around 90, well, separated about 97, 98, and then moved to New York in 90, uh, in 2000. So I was there for 10 years. Um, and I played with Poi Dog, um, and I played with uh, Archer Pruitt as well. Right. Um, 
and you know played with John and you know the Pine Valley Cosmonauts and all of that sort of stuff. Ended up you know played a bit with Freak Water too. Um, so yeah, kind of, you know, Chicago's just great for collaborations and and playing you know with different people and you know you get people from like the jazz jazz fusion world or you know playing on on you know freak water stuff or whatever you know it's just great it's really good i think uh, and i hope it's still like that and uh and waco brothers you were the original drummer in that too was that when you were still living here yeah so and mecons you you left in the early 90s and then rejoined later what was the story there i just got fed up with it um got fed up with a and m i think and it was like wasn't fun anymore. We 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 signed up to this major label, and and they'd sort of separated. I think John and Sally and Tom from the rest of us, and they were the spokesman kind of thing, and we were just like the backing band. And I think that's something that labels do quite a lot. Um, and it was just disappointing to me, and I just got sort of, I felt left out. I think in in much the same way as you know, like when Ringo left the Beatles or something. You know? <laughs> like, like, oh, I don't feel that appreciated. Well, I thought I was the one, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, I I, I got fed up and I, I got a job in Chicago. Worked at uh, Cargo Records in the warehouse uh, for a bit, um, which was great. Actually, it was really you know, I met some really nice people there. Um, and then in the end, I, I went to see them at to see the Mekons at Metro, and I was just like sobbing because it's like that should be me up there <laughs> <laughs> um, so I came crawling back you know, about three years later and uh, you know, the rest is history it's nice to be back well it was where you belonged so yeah rock and roll is such a fantastic record and then the curse just was only released as an we only got it here as an import as I remember mm. and and you're still on that one I think that was the last <laughs> one you were on for a bit mm -hmm. um, but it had already kind of I mean and that's a, and that's a terrific record also it mm -hmm. just uh, but but it was like commercially like I don't understand why this is not even available here um, well they didn't like it the AM didn't like it they didn't think it was commercially viable well it's not going to be commercially viable if you don't sell it so okay and that's that i've been doing these these you know podcast conversations and i think that at least three bands had their bad major label experience with AM. Mm. um it just seems like it's uh i was just talking to steve Wynn of the dream syndicate and they were on AM also and it was also mm. like they got the big boomy production and then they all didn't get along anymore <laughs> so mm. i don't know the major well, label we're, seem we're, like they we're just... still here and am and am isn't mm. exactly you're playing with the mecons but it's not mm. a full-time gig what else uh uh, I just started playing with um, Ivan Julian here. Oh, um, um, just did a gig before I went away uh, up at Lincoln Center. Um, so that's fun. He's really nice, very super nice guy. I met him. I played a benefit for him when he had cancer um, a few years back. And uh, yeah, it, it's a nice band, and yeah, it's good fun. So I'm doing that. How do you how do you keep your chops up? Do you just play out a lot? Do you have a kit in your home where you can just keep practicing? Um, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, I, I how do I? Um, I'm I'm always just sort of tapping. I've always been tapping on things ever since I was a kid. So I just keep doing that. You know, um, and luckily, you know, it's as I've got older. Um, the musicians I play with haven't got louder, so I can, you know, I don't, it's not as much of an exertion as it used to be. Uh, so that's good. 
The only trouble I have is just kind of carrying the drums. I need someone to carry the drums for me, but uh, playing is fine. Do you do you do anything special to protect your ears? Oh, my ears are no. That, that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> I, wear, I wear hearing aids now, um, but I do have in-ear monitors now, which I probably should have had like twenty years ago. But uh, yeah, I've got. Uh, um, my hearing is just like, you know, you have this graph, the hearing kind of goes up like that. And then where the, the symbol frequency, it goes down like that. Wow. So I, I have, I need hearing aids. So. Wear hearing protection, kids. There yes. you go. You just got back from Spain. Yeah, we were in uh, Valencia uh, for two weeks uh, recording an album, the Mekons, this is uh, recording an album. It's the first time we've all been together in the same place for a long time, uh, since 2019, I guess. Yeah. So are you done? Is there a new Mekons album that's finished? Uh, it's not finished yet. No, we did the basic stuff and people, you know, will probably add bits and pieces and, and, and it needs to be mixed and stuff. So it won't be out till next year. How is the, how is the feeling of doing this one? Like, does this one have a theme? Cause they often have kind of thematic things going on. Um, yeah, it, yeah, we didn't start out with a theme at all, um, but it seemed like everybody was, you know, it, there's refugees and reconciliation in three hours, reconciliation, retribution and refugees. It seemed to be like uh, that was the theme of what everybody was writing about, you know, um, and I don't know why that is. You know, I mean, I, I wrote lyrics to one thing and, and it seemed to match up completely with what john was writing so we just kind of stuck the two things together which is weird because we hadn't really talked about you know a theme of, you know, it's not like sergeant peppers or anything like that <laughs> do you guys go there and have you know send each other songs you're working on beforehand or do you just sort of start workshopping everything when you're together um well a little bit of both there was you know some sketches i mean there was not really any fully realized demos nobody turned up and said this is the way it's supposed to be um it was like more like snippets of lyrics and sort of little you know things that people recorded on their phones and you just kind of work it up in there we basically all set up in a circle in the studio and recorded sort of live and then and put stuff on afterwards um and you know you're trying to figure out how to um approach different songs um and you just do it. It's like trial and error, really. Somebody comes up with an idea and somebody goes, oh, yeah, that's, that'll work. Or why don't we do this? And that kind of thing. Now, has that process changed much over the years? Like when you, you know, sort of joined and you're doing stuff? Well, everything is different. I mean, every album is, is different. Like when we recorded Nikon's Rock and Roll in 89, that was more like a live thing. We'd written all the songs before we went out on tour. And then we played them live and they sort of changed when we were playing them live and then we went into the studio and basically recorded that so that was one way of doing it but then when we recorded me in the 90s uh that was all done on computer that was kind of cobbled together and stitched together and stuff and that was very much like a sort of more artificial thing but i really like that album anyway i like both of them but for different way in different ways you know right and now you, now you guys just show up somewhere exotic and uh Bang it, mm, it wasn't that exotic <laughs> yeah i mean it, we were you know we stayed in an airbnb like five minutes away from the from the sea but i'm not a great swimmer so some pe people that wanted to go swimming went swimming um but it was super hot i mean it was insanely hot and insanely humid and i'm not that kind of a person you know and so i just like would run from the airbnb into the 
car and then into this <laughs> air conditioned studio and that would, that would be it <laughs> so That's but it's great. very well, nice you- it's, it's really lovely i mean but, you know we, when we were staying with some really nice people as well so it was that was great yeah. Any mm-hmm. schedule for when you guys are going to play out again? You're going to come? Uh, not at the moment. Uh, I hope maybe next year, if everybody's still around next year. Um, uh, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. It will be next year now, I should think. <clears throat> but yeah, everybody's raring to go. I think and we had a nice time recording the album. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't, I can't wait to hear it. And I really appreciate you talking to me about all this. I, um, I've just admired your work in so many different, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Mekons fan and seen you play with them so many times, but I also listened to those Nick Lowe and watching the detectives and those Grand Parker and the rumors. And I, I also enjoyed seeing you in this is 40. I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. We didn't even talk about the Grand Parker reunion record. So yeah, that was fun. It's fun to do. The second one is better. Uh, I, I, I like that one better. But uh, yeah, that was nice. It was a little unexpected, uh, nice little unexpected get together. Well, thank you again. Great talking to you. I uh, look forward to seeing you and hearing you again soon. Nice talking to you, Mark. That's it for episode 50 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Steve Goulding for sharing his memories and insights about the great music he has made over the years. Now you should go back to the Graham Parker and the Rumor and the Mekons catalogs and give a fresh listen also to Nick Lowe's Jesus of Cool or Pure Pop for Now People. Depends what you want to call it. As well as Elvis Costello's Watching the Detectives. It's all stellar stuff. Then go on YouTube to check out that Tonight Show performance of Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes with David Bowie. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake in, yes, the heart of the city. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.